hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. These are God's words, so we would be wise to listen. Verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that is drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope unto the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. I brought something with me this morning, and uh, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't know what this is, but this is blanky. Or perhaps I should say this is all that's left of Blanky. Blanky was a Carter's receiving blanket that I received at birth. And in my early years, we were inseparable. I loved Blanky. Kids, perhaps you all have a lovey or a blanket that's similar to this. Hopefully it looks better than, than mine. And I would drag Blanky wherever I went. I would sleep with it at night. I hold it close to me while I Suck my thumb. You're learning a lot about me here. But if I'm honest, I relied on Blanky and sucking my thumb for far too long. Eventually, I had grown too old for both. But truth be told, I, I didn't really want to grow up. And my grandfather lived in Arizona when I was a child, and so often he would just show up unannounced on our doorstep for a visit. And he would stay for us at weeks, for weeks at a time, and our family was just thrilled to have him with, with us. And uh, he was very helpful when he was there. He would run errands, he would drive us around, and he would do laundry. And one day, I came home from school to learn that Grandpa had washed Blanky. And Blanky was so well-loved and so threadbare that it didn't survive the washing. Blanky had actually become four sad fragments, and this is one of them. You might be wondering why I still have it. <laughs> I think God had me save it for this very illustration. Well, I was undone. 
in that very moment. I was inconsolable. And at that moment, I had two options. One was to double down on my immature thumb-sucking and blanky reliance to find a replacement for a blanket that was irreplaceable. And my other option was to use this unfortunate, shocking, devastating turn of events to consider whether it might be time for me to grow up and move past my blankie and my thumb. Reluctantly but thankfully, I chose the latter. So much of our early lives are marked by constant evaluation, report cards and tryouts and competitions with classmates, seeing how we size up. And those assessments can be helpful to motivate us to change our behavior, to help us to recognize perhaps that we aren't performing at a level that's consistent with our age and that it's time for us to do something different. This can happen in our spiritual lives as well. Of course, whenever we hold our lives up against God's standards in Scripture, we will always find ourselves wanting. We recognize that we're all works in progress. But sometimes... God gets our attention to let us know that our spiritual maturity is flagging and that we're not acting our age, so to speak, as it relates to our relationship with God through Christ. He might use a particular scripture or a sermon or a Bible study or a conversation with a friend to hold up a mirror that helps us to see that we are struggling and that we have some growing up to do. And our passage this morning serves as that type of disruption. We're continuing our study in Hebrews, and today we consider together, as Paul already mentioned, one of the most challenging and debated passages in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 6, 12. Uh, if you're new to the scriptures, you'll find Hebrews toward the back of your Bible. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 1190 if you'd like to follow along. Uh, the author of this letter is unknown. The original recipients were first century Jewish Christians who were tempted to give up on following Jesus to return to their familial, familiar religious practice of the Old Testament law, which included all the rituals and all the sacrifices that it contained. And this pull to their old ways and habits and traditions was keeping them from maturing as they should. And so the author is calling them to wake up to grow up, to take stock of their slow, dullness, to hear. And the theme of this passage is a call to them and to us. Do not fall away, but commit yourself to growth in Christ until the end. And there are three movements in this passage. A course correction, a caution, and then a call to commitment. And so we start with the course correction, picking up with where we left off last week in verse 11. This is what the author has to say. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Initially, this letter would have been read aloud in one hearing for the benefit of the congregation or congregations who first received it, but as we study it together in segments, we need to string together the author's argument from week to week. And when he writes about this, we have much to say. He's referring to the topic that he's just broached in the previous verses. Namely, that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Paul introduced us to Melchizedek briefly in his sermon last week. And here the author signals that he has a lot to tell us about him. And indeed, Melchizedek is, is, a is a prominent theme in the letter. But who is he? 
Uh, He's mentioned eight times in Hebrews, more than any other book of the Bible. And he dominates chapter 6 and 7, which we'll turn to next week. But before the author can go there, before he can address the high priesthood of Melchizedek, he has to stop and acknowledge a problem. This concept of Melchizedek is not only difficult to explain, but the Hebrews have become dull of hearing. He explains in verses 12 to 13. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. The concept of Jesus' membership in the priestly order of Melchizedek is a complex topic suited for the mature. And before he can address it with this group of Hebrews, the author needs to offer these Jewish followers of Jesus a course correction. By his estimation, they have been Christians long enough that they should now be instructing others in the faith, but they're stuck relying on milk. The picture is one of children who are entirely dependent on nursing. Instead of feeding others, they need to be fed. They cannot feed themselves. Instead of teaching others, these Hebrews still need someone to teach them the basics of Christianity. Now, while it might differ from culture to culture, uh, there comes an age where everyone would agree that a child is too old for nursing. The expectation is for all children eventually to wean. No one is going to chide a baby for nursing, but if a six-year-old hasn't been introduced to solids yet, there's a problem. The author of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers that they've been Christians longer than their current maturity reflects. Now, perhaps you're here with us this morning and you're just investigating Christianity. You're, You're curious about the Bible. You're eager to learn more about Jesus. You need milk, as it were. You need basic instructions in the fundamentals of the faith. It's entirely appropriate for those who are seeking after God uh, to stick to the basics. And this is true for every single one of us. At one point in time, we needed milk. But according to the author, the Hebrews are beyond this stage. They are beyond that point. They have followed Jesus long enough to demonstrate more maturity than they are. Verse 14 But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I remember when I was a relatively new Christian in college, someone would open their Bible or lead a study or preach a sermon, and I would think to myself, I could never do that. That's because I hadn't had my powers of discernment trained by constant practice. I had very limited knowledge of the Bible. I was like a young child trying to emulate an Olympic athlete. Such an individual has spent countless hours honing his or her craft, practicing under the instruction of coaches day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. Well, growth in Christianity is similar. It comes from constant practice in the Word of God reading it, studying it with others, applying it to your life, consistently submitting your thoughts and your speech and your manner of your life to God's instruction. Growth won't happen overnight, but it won't happen at all without practice. 
Without practice, growth is impossible. And you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to know that this is true. But often for us, the question isn't whether we are practicing, but what we're practicing. How does your practice in God's Word compare to your practice in social or even traditional media? How does your practice in God's Word compare to your streaming of entertainment? How does your practice of God's Word compare to your sports enthusiasm? I'm looking at myself here. How does your practice in God's Word compare to your physical exercise? These are just a few examples of ways uh, that we might not be taking our constant practice in the faith, our constant practice in God's Word more seriously. Because if we are to grow, if we are to mature, we must exercise ourselves in the Word. Not simply for the sake of maturity, but so that we might know and love the God who reveals Himself in the Word. Apart from regular extended practice in His Word, this is difficult, if not impossible. And we, we never arrive. If God's word is like an intimidating mountain and we're like hikers, growth in Christ is like a slow, steady ascent up that mountain. We might reach a peak of understanding, but then that peak turns out to be a false peak. And what unfolds before us is a whole new set of ridges and ranges to reach. The key is for a commitment to keep moving up that mountain. There's always more to learn, learn about God, but it's not learning for learning's sake. It's not for mere acquisition of knowledge. Our learning should always be, be bent toward knowing God more, loving Him more, ob ob obeying Him more faithfully, and serving Him more fervently. So for some of you, that might just be a commitment to reading the Bible every day. That's been a struggle for you. Or simply prioritizing your time in God's Word over other activities. We should think twice about spending hours in Netflix if we haven't cracked open our Bibles as Christians. For others, it might mean investing in someone else's growth. Like inviting them to read a book of the Bible with you. Or for others, you might just consider what it means to step out and serve this church family in a new way. All living things grow, but the Hebrews were not growing, at least not at the rate that they should have been. And one reason was because they had become dull of hearing. The same word is translated later in our passage in chapter 6, verse 12, as sluggish. They're lethargic. They're unresponsive to instruction. They're unmotivated to grow and learn. They are not taking their faith as seriously as they should. And it shows. What about you? Has your love for God grown in recent weeks, months, even years? Has your desire to grow increased? Has your ability to discern good from evil improved? Are you making progress, however slow it might be, up the mountain? Well, the author is offering this disruptive moment of this letter as an opportunity to make a course correction and to grow up. He's not asking six-year-olds to act like 16-year-olds. That would be cruel. He's acting six-year-olds to act like six-year-olds, not like infants. They're far too immature for their age, and so he's giving them a course correction, and he's calling them to grow up. And he gets more specific as to how they need to grow in verse 1 of chapter 6. Look with me there. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. 
And this we will do if God permits. The author encourages these Jewish Christians to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, when we read that word in English, it conjures the notion of abandoning, neglecting, forsaking the elementary doctrine or teachings. Uh, But the word in Greek here simply means to progress past, to move beyond, to, to keep those things, but to move beyond them. What's striking about these six elements of teaching or doctrine that he lists in three pairs is that none of them is distinctly Christian. We probably wouldn't list washings or laying on of hands as fundamental Christian teaching. Uh, These teachings likely represent elements of the Jewish faith that found new expanded meaning in Christianity. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God were part of the Jewish practice. Washings and laying on of hands, they appear all throughout the Old Testament and they find new purpose in the new. And while all Jewish people would have believed in eternal judgment, some, like the Pharisees, would have also believed in the resurrection of the dead about which we've already sung together today. So part of the Hebrews' struggle was resorting back to what was familiar, what they knew best from their religious upbringing. And these things were not bad or wrong. They were simply insufficient And as we read these elements together, these six things, what stands out is that they're missing the central importance of Christ's death and resurrection for the Christian. It is entirely possible to believe in the importance of repentance or turning from sin and turning toward faith in God without believing the gospel, without believing that those things are only possible ultimately through Christ. It's possible to believe in eternal judgment. Most people do without believing the basis for such judgment, that God will spare those who trust in Jesus' sacrificial death and punish those who do not. Clarity on the gospel is missing from these so-called basics. The author wants his audience to understand that they cannot rely on this vague list alone. If we are to grow in Christian maturity, we must understand specifically what Jesus has done for us. And with the Spirit's help, we must believe it by faith unto salvation. We must appropriate it for ourselves. We must must trust in it functionally for salvation. And that's the emphasis that then comes in verse 3. This we will do if, if God permits. This is not some throwaway cliché. The author is reinforcing that God is ultimately responsible for our growth. We cannot grow without his gracious intentions and work in our lives. But this is in no way an excuse for lethargy or inaction or immaturity. The author is offering a course correction for these Hebrews. He's telling them it's time to grow up. Only God can cause growth, but we must respond We must participate in the work that he intends to do in our lives. It does not happen passively. It does not happen magically. Sanctification, growth in God's grace, is a joint work between God and us, and we must commit ourselves to it. See, the Hebrews were straddling the fence between returning to their old religious practices and following Jesus fully. And this indecision, this lethargy, this dullness of hearing, this immaturity was opening them to danger. It was making them vulnerable to spiritual shipwreck. And so starting in verse 4, the author gives them a caution. Do not fall away, because if they do, they will never return. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible 
to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. In this section, the author moves away from his personal and direct address of the Hebrews to provide a very real potential situation that serves as a caution to the Hebrews and also to us. This is the third of five warnings that we find in the book of Hebrews. The first was in chapter 2, the danger of drifting away. The second was in chapter 3, the danger of disobedience. And here in chapter 6, we find perhaps the most difficult and serious warning, the danger of falling away. It is impossible, the the author tells us, those who have fallen away to be restored to repentance. What does this mean, to fall away? Well, one interpretation in Christian history is that this refers to genuine Christians who have repented of their sin, trusted in Jesus, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they participate in the life of the church, and they have, they have given up their faith. This understanding suggests that it is possible for true followers to lose their faith, to lose their salvation. But this is not readily supported by Scripture. For example, in John chapter 10, Jesus tells us, My Father who has given my sheep to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Once in Jesus' penfold, you're secure. In Romans 11.29, the Apostle Paul writes, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And again, he writes in Colossians 1, uh, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's an actual functional movement of us from death to life. Now this passage that we have today is difficult to understand, but we interpret difficult passages by going to clear ones. And the Bible is very clear that being born again in Christ is a very real spiritual constitutional change. You cannot lose your salvation. None of the words that the writer uses in these verses suggest the finality or certainty of saving faith. Instead, they suggest that these individuals in question that the author is describing have had initial exposure to, experience with, and understanding of Christ. Verse 4, they were once enlightened. But in chapter 1, verse 9 of his gospel, John describes Jesus as the true light which gives light to everyone. They've simply been exposed to this. And the author of Hebrews is describing people who have been exposed to and perhaps even responded positively to the gospel. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, this word for taste is also used in Hebrews 2.9, earlier in this very letter to describe Jesus' momentary experience with death. He tasted it. And they have briefly encountered the very real blessings that flow in the context of Christian fellowship like this one. Blessings that come ultimately from God himself. They've been exposed to the salvation of others. They've benefited from their spiritual gifts given by the Spirit. Perhaps they've even shown initial signs of new life themselves. But he does not, the author, does not use more powerful language that is consistent with salvation in the Bible. He does not tell us that they've been indwelt with or filled by the Holy Spirit, which is how Scripture speaks of true believers. 
The people he is describing have also tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. Well, the Bible has always been central to true Christian worship and fellowship throughout the centuries. And so anyone who has participated in a faithful church would have been exposed to Scripture and seen its truth and beauty and goodness. And they would have heard about Christ's return and forever reign. Perhaps these folks even had an initial positive response to the word. But the people that he is describing did not truly believe it. They never put their trust in Christ and in his finished work on their behalf. And as a result, they've fallen away. This is just apostasy. This is an active rejection of the Christian faith and thus a full abandonment of Christ himself. For those who fall away, we learn that it is impossible to be restored to repentance because they have rejected, they have actively rejected the one true Savior and chosen to rely on themselves for salvation. And so this, in effect, is crucifying Christ all over again, over and over again, bringing contempt to his name. The author then turns to a familiar agricultural illustration to drive this very point home in verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This illustration of fruit versus thorns is a common one that goes all the way back to Adam's curse in the Garden of Eden. One prominent example of this is found in Isaiah 5, where God compares faithless Israel to a vineyard that has become fruitless, and he withholds rain and turns it over to briars and thorns. And here in Hebrews 6, we see that a proper response to God's grace ultimately results in fruit that brings glory to God. The life that is produced in us when we trust in Christ and walk by the power of the Holy Spirit is a useful crop that feeds others. Just as growth is a part of life, so is reproduction. But uh, any gardener knows that thorns and briars and thistles choke out other plants. Uh, perhaps the most memorable illustration of this very kind in Scripture is Jesus' own parable of the sower in Matthew 13. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you, or even if you are, I encourage you to read it uh, sometime today for context. Because it directly informs our reading of Hebrews 6. Because Jesus tells a parable of a sower who scattered seed on four different types of ground, each one representing a different response to God's word and its gospel. And the first seed landed on the path. It represented hard-heartedness, an outright initial rejection of the truth. The second type of ground is called rocky ground. It represents a shallow response to the gospel. Jesus describes an initial response of joy, but no root. And so when persecution and trial and tribulation come, they cause the plant to wither. The third type of soil is among thorns, which represent the cares of this world. And what they do is they choke out the plant. These second and third types of soil are what the author is describing in Hebrews chapter 6, initial positive responses that show life but do not endure to the end. They're very real responses, but those who have them eventually fall away. This is the exact same language that Jesus uses in his parable. Now, to live in Houston 
is to be very familiar with impermeable surfaces. Uh, the USGA did a recent study and found that one-third of Harris County has impervious cover. This is what makes flooding so dangerous, obviously, under heavy rainfall. There's simply not enough soil exposed to drink all that rain. But may it never be said of us. May we never be impervious to God's word. May we never be dull of hearing. Let us drink in God's word and its central message of the gospel. And that is that God's own son lived a perfect life. And he died willingly for our sins on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the grave and he offers real, true, powerful, everlasting life to all who will call on his name in faith. This gospel message is like a gigantic diamond. What Jesus has done for us is so grand and so beautiful and so precious that it takes a lifetime for us to explore and appreciate the facets. But just like a huge mountain shouldn't intimidate us, neither should a priceless jewel. But it's impossible for us to exhaust the riches that flow from the cross of Christ. It's a lifetime enterprise. To trust in what he has done is to be truly born again. And it enables us to then share that same good news with others. So that they might experience the ultimate blessing from God as well. But if we are impervious to God's word, or if we allow persecution or tribulation to intimidate us, or if we care more about the cares of the world than we care about the God who made this world for his own glory, we will bear thorns and thistles. And the word that he uses here is worthless. Simply means to fail the test, like Paul mentioned last week. It proves not to be true or authentic. Those who ultimately fall away demonstrate that they were never genuine Christians. Their faith was never in Christ and Christ alone. And that's why it was easy for them to fall away. It's like giving up the biggest diamond in the world for rhinestones, for costume jewelry. And as a result, they face an eternal curse a permanent punishment and separation from God that each one of us must take very seriously in our own lives, but also the lives of those we love. This is why the author gives us such a stern warning. So far, he's given us a course correction, that is to grow up, and then a caution, do not fall away. And in the closing verses of our passage, he calls them to a commitment, and that is to press on, to press on to the very end. Verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Now the Bible really only describes two types of people, in Christ or in sin, lost or found, in the dark or in the light, blind or seeing, dead or alive, cursed or blessed, doomed or saved, in the sand or on the rock, foolish or wise, goats or sheep who belong to the good shepherd. And yet, there's no easy way to look at someone and be sure which category he or she falls in. It's just not possible. I always thought there might, might be helpful just to have a green light on someone's forehead. 
but we don't have that. Only God knows. And we can look for a credible profession of faith as we welcome members into our fellowship. But Jesus tells us simply that the one who endures to the end will be saved. True faith endures to the end. I've had friends who showed all the signs of genuine trust in Jesus just fall away. Likely you have too. And it can be very disorienting and discouraging. And even though the author has warned the Hebrews that this is where their persistent immaturity could potentially lead to them falling away, he also offers them the encouragement of these verses. Although their situation is precarious, although their fence-sitting is dangerous, although their temptation to return to their old familiar practices could lead to a permanent separation from God, he's confident that what they have demonstrated to this point is true spiritual life. Their work in the gospel and their love for the saints is fruit that suggests that they're planted in the fourth type of soil, good soil. And that their faith in Christ is authentic. He's familiar with their lives. And what he sees suggests that they're true followers of Jesus on the path to salvation. But he's not satisfied to just leave them there. Just like a guide wouldn't be happy with hikers setting up camp partway up the mountain with hours of daylight left. He encourages them to press on. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In line with his previous course correction and his caution, the author encourages readers to press on, to persevere until the end, to hold fast to the assurance of their faith, and to keep hope in Christ's consummation of all things because it is coming. They must not persist in sluggishness as has been their recent pattern, but they should imitate those who through faith and practice inherit the promises of God. Now when I first became a Christian, I didn't really have anyone to guide me. I didn't know that I was a new Christian and maybe others didn't either. Uh, but my junior year in college, I read Elizabeth Elliot's In the Shadow of the Almighty. And as I read journal entries from Jim Elliot's junior year in college, I felt so far behind. I was comparing myself to someone who, though the same age as I was at the time of his writing, was far older in the faith. But reading that memoir of a man who gave his very life for the gospel moved me to want to be like him. Not necessarily to become a missionary and a martyr, but to, to live a life completely sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that, that God used Jim Elliott's brief but powerful life and the book that his wife wrote to give me a model worth imitating. And we have those examples right here in this congregation. I've only been here for a few weeks, but I've already been so encouraged by the maturity that's present in this fellowship. This passage is not a call to personal perfection. Instead, it calls us to a progressing faith in our perfect Savior. 
It calls us to commit ourselves to growth in our knowledge and love and faith and obedience to Christ as God wills and as he empowers us. And I'm so glad that it doesn't end with the warning, but instead with the author's assurance that the Hebrews are indeed trusting in Christ. Now, only God knows where your faith is this morning. But this passage should not leave us in insecurity, but it should drive us to rest in the only one who can offer us true, everlasting security. He is the jewel of greatest price. Hear this. To forsake him is to turn to cheap substitutes that will never satisfy because God made us expressly for a relationship with him. Now, after the great blanky disaster of my early years, I was resolved to quit sucking my thumb. It was time to grow up. I was resolved to change. And yet sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night with my thumb in my mouth. It was a long-standing habit that probably went back to my mother's womb. Well, our faith can have similar setbacks. For those who grew up in a non-religious household, there may be beliefs or traditions or practices or sin patterns that you resort to unknowingly. If you grew up in a legalistic home or church, you might find yourself at times resorting to the law and the comfort that external obedience brings. Or perhaps you hear this word today and you admit that you're sluggish or dull of hearing. And so may this passage serve as a disruption for each of us, as a course correction, a caution, and a call to commitment. Like my grandfather's fateful blanky washing, waking up with my thumb in my mouth was yet another reminder that I still had room to grow. And I finally had to start painting it with a solution that tasted like rotten bananas so that I wouldn't turn back to it in my sleep. So how will you respond to the disruption of this passage? What steps do you need to take to pursue a new stage of growth? Are you sluggish? Are you dull of hearing? Do you need, simply need to just tell someone that? This is not just an individual issue, though. This is one for our life together as a church family. And so this also begs the question, how can we help encourage one another toward conversations about our doubts while reminding each, one, each other about the assurance and the security that we have in our perfect Savior who conquered sin and death for us. Because if our trust is in him, we can have great confidence that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so let us grow up together. Let us encourage each other not to fall away and let us press on together. Let us commit ourselves to growth in Christ, our priestly king, until the very end. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us today. And first, I just want to thank you for your glorious gospel. I want to thank you for the security that we can find in Christ. And I want to pray for those who are here today who are maybe wrestling with the gospel, with the truth of your word. And I ask that today with this passage, you would seal their hearts with the Holy Spirit, that they would truly believe in you, the living God. And I pray for all of us that you would help us to take the next 
step in growth that you have for us, that we would grow up today, that we would not fall away, that we would not be distracted by the cares of the world and attracted to things that will never satisfy, but instead we would find our deepest satisfaction in you. Would you help us as a congregation to press on by the power your spirit supplies? In Jesus' name, amen.